This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. to value listeners as leaders in the value movement we must seek improved and equitable health outcomes that result in overall lower total cost of care we have to look at this from a system level and this is where learning and collaboration comes into play and i'd like to tell you about the healthcare payment learning action network it's called hcp lan or simply the lan and this is an active group of public and private healthcare leaders that are dedicated to providing thought leadership, strategic direction, and ongoing support to accelerate our nation's healthcare system to adoption of alternative payment models. And, you know, they're looking at increased adoption, which equates to greater investment and adoption of uh, these APMs. They're looking at equitable models. They're collaborating with CMS. And, and they're also looking at value-based care through the lens of multi-stakeholder alignment. So, Dan, we have two very important leaders in the value movement. They're on the executive forum for the land. These are two leaders on a national level that are driving payment model adoption and ideation, looking at ways we can address social determinants of health and reduce ineffective care, looking at transparency and interoperability and analytical capabilities and facilitating market shifts to value. Dan, I could not be more excited to have you introduce our two guests this week as we look at the amazing work that the HCP LAN is doing uh, for the value movement. Thanks, Eric. I'm excited to introduce them as well. And what a great conversation we had with both of them today. Uh, I, I know our listeners are going to really appreciate hearing from Dr. Mark McClellan. He's the land co-chair and director of the Duke Margola Center of Health Policy. And he was a co-founder of the Institute for Advancing Health Value with Governor and, and former Secretary Levitt, and just a, a great friend of the Institute. We really appreciate his guidance and leadership. And, and, and he's joined today by Dr. Judy Zerzen Thule, also a land co-chair and chief medical officer at the Washington State Healthcare Authority. She's doing so much at the state level, Eric, and I know our listeners are going to really value hearing from both of them. Let's now hear from Dr. Mark McClellan and Dr. Judy Zerzenthul as they join us this week in the Race to Value. And if you like what you hear, make sure to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform, and we'd love a five-star rating so we can continue to provide quality content to help empower you in this Race to Value. Dr. Mark McClellan, 
Dr. Judy Zerzenthul. We are so grateful to have you on the podcast today. Welcome to the Race to Value. Thanks, Daniel. Great to be with you. It's great to be here. So I wanted to ask you both about the impact of the pandemic on value-based health reforms. And, you know, understandably, this was a theme of the recent land summit. And, you know, so many in the industry now are seeing that this recognition of health equity and this movement to value-based care, it's now being accelerated because of the realization of both the economic and moral imperatives that we have to reform our health system. And value-based care is really at this important inflection point. And it's uh, seemingly one of the if anything, one of the potential silver linings of the uh, of the pandemic and that it's shed light on the benefits of value-based care, the challenges that we have in, in, in health inequities, and, and it's created a consumer awareness around technology enablement that maybe patients had not had previously. So Mark, I wanted to ask you, can you speak a little bit uh, about, from your standpoint, what has been the impact of the pandemic on value-oriented organizations like ACOs and those employing other APMs? And what does that tell us about the future of APM adoption? Yeah, it's a, a little bit of a complicated answer. And we did, um, as you said at the summit, go into this in some depth. And if you go to the website, there are recordings and other resources, slides, et cetera, from all the sessions that are available too. But it's uh, reflective of the differences across our healthcare system and the adoption of value-based health reforms heading into the pandemic. For most healthcare organizations, well, for all healthcare organizations, this has been a tough several years, but especially for those that were reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis and had not moved very far down the, the, the value-based um, care pathway. For them, just at a time when we really needed healthcare organizations stepping up, um, essentially the bottom fell out of their reimbursement. Uh, patients stopped coming into the hospital, stopped doing elective procedures, and organizations were not only forced to deal with um, an unprecedented pandemic and all the stresses that created and challenges for their workforce and their communities, um, but also financial challenges as well. Fortunately, we saw some really fast responses from um, CMS and from the federal government. CMS, all kinds of flexibilities essentially to enable procedures or services to be performed by telehealth and in different sites, um, by providers, maybe from other states or things like that, that um, enabled uh, um, our healthcare system to, to step up. And I think um, these payment flexibilities are one of the unsung heroes of the pandemic that enabled so much of the response in states. Uh, Medicaid programs alike um, uh, did as well. Private insurers played a part too in supporting this kind of uh, immediate flexibility. Um, but for organizations that were already doing value-based care, I think they had a much easier time making that adjustment. Uh, first off, um, if they were already moved towards a, a partial capitation basis, you know, being paid per person and they're taking care of longitudinally rather than fee-for-service, they're in much better shape financially uh, in the, uh, in, especially in the early days of the pandemic and getting through 2020 and 2021 until, you know, so-called 
while volume started to recover. Um, second, and also importantly, they had already implemented a lot of the steps that turned out to be really critical in pandemic response. Uh, telehealth, you know, already had programs in place to do that. Active um, programs to find their highest risk patients. Um, in this case, elderly patients who, you know, they wanted to make sure they had uh, tests available, make sure they were aware of and, and could get vaccinated and so forth. They already were doing longitudinal uh, data tracking um, and tracking uh, key um, indicators of, of, of quality of care. They already had teams uh, for care uh, in the community um, that could do things like help with delivering meals or, or help um, uh, get um, uh, vaccinations out into the community or, or, or um, more recently uh, testing and access to, to, to treatment and the like. So a lot of the things that other organizations had to adapt to overnight were already built in. And now as we're heading out of at least the acute part of the uh, of the pandemic, I think they're having an easier time too. You know, we the, those temporary steps, uh, the CMS flexibilities are still there for now, so that's helping. But some of those are going to go away. I mean, the CMS doesn't have the statutory authority to continue them in a non-emergent time. And even if Congress changes some of them, these concepts uh, like team-based approaches to care, use of uh, remote monitoring, et cetera, they, they just work better when they're not done, you know, sort of one-off, but when they're part of this comprehensive value-based approach to, to uh, focusing on patients' longitudinal well-being and, and improving their, their over tracking and improving their overall outcomes. So while the pandemic was a, a big disruption for everyone, um, now that we're coming out of it, we've got a number of organizations that are kind of continuing down the value-based care road, especially if they were already doing it before, and also many more that kind of went into this temporary phase with the extra federal funding, that the temporary flexibilities that are now um, trying to figure out how to move forward at a, a really challenging time when the extra money is going away, when we're facing high inflation, workforce challenges. And a big focus at the summit was on how do we help them move forward? How do we meet them where they are in the conditions that we're facing now? And it's through additional um, kinds of initiatives that CMS has announced. We can talk about those. Uh, it's through uh, additional resources, the, the learning that the HCP LAN um, and other organizations like yours are, are, are making available. Um, but we're seeing some both renewed interest in moving more permanently into value-based care among the organizations that hadn't done it pre-pandemic as a way of continuing some of the activities that worked in the pandemic, um, but also a, a need for adapting our programs and recognizing the, uh, the special and challenging times that we're in right now. Mark, thanks for that overview. Really appreciate it. And I think, you know, the key words to me were the standout or the flexibilities that were needed and the the holistic approach that an organization needs to when we when we consider how much of healthcare is really regulated versus other industries and and we're trying to tell people how they should do it making one-off solutions it's just not an effective way to do it and and that concept about an organization having the freedom and flexibility that they need to do the right thing for patients just really stands out to me as being so important and i want to jump to one really positive impact that came out of the pandemic and and it also required a social justice movement to really lead us down to this point but it's that the we now have increased industry attention and focus on health inequities we have a, a 
host of new policies and program elements that are designed to address or at least to better understand health inequities. And we know that CMS has taken a leading role operationalizing a, a renewed commitment to health equity, and I'm so grateful to see that. And I'm 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 excited to see the positive response from others across industry as well. And Judy, maybe we can start with you. How would you describe the current strategy to incorporate health equity in APM design? And are there APMs where advancing health equity is more of a challenge or or maybe where a health equity focus is more drastically needed? Sure, that's a great question. One of the things that we unveiled at the summit is a new accountable care commitment curve so that organizations, health plans, providers, purchasers, sort of every anyone that's involved in healthcare can sort of put themselves in that curve where they are in their journey towards value-based payment and APMs. And one thing on that curve is there's a couple of um, threads that kind of go across all of the stages of, of APMs. And health equity is one of those, is one of those threads. And I think a very important thread that I agree it's important we're talking about. And I think where it health equity gets incorporated in APMs varies depending on the organization. And I think there's a progression like the commitment curve, there's a progression of incorporating health equity. So it starts with just acknowledging health equity and maybe committing publicly towards moving toward equity in your organization and developing a plan. That part's fairly straightforward. Then it gets a little harder at the next level where organizations should invest somehow in equity and really start to change some of their structures. We have as part of the LAN a health equity advisory team or HEAT team. Um, and the HEAT team has some recommendations of how to start approaching equity in your healthcare organization that I think are a great place to start. And I think it's also important in, in this sort of middle stage that organizations start measuring and reporting outcomes. And not just sort of your traditional quality measures, but really trying to figure out how do we get to better health outcomes in people with different races, ethnicities, people with disabilities, all the different groups that are really impacted by health equity. And then I think when you're really firing on all cylinders and um, working well is that an organization has embedded health equity in its mission, in its governance, and I think financially invested in how, how to address disparities and inequities, and they have a measurable reduction in that. And I think to get there, it really requires organizations to to do more than talk about it. It's it's easy I think to talk about it. A lot of us are talking about health equity. I think it's harder and most important to start to take action and to work at how you improve health equity. And part of that work is to bring communities to the table of healthcare organizations to to share power, to listen to people's perspective that have been marginalized in the past and figure out how can we serve these populations? How can we serve these people better? I love that. Thank you, Dr. Zerzenthal. Uh, Mark, I'm going to follow up on some of her comments and and ask you to expound a little bit on the Lands Health Equity Advisory Team. I know they recently released the Social Risk Adjustment Document 
and it's intended to give guidance on how organizations can operationalize that concept. And I'd love to dive a little deeper on the impact we can expect from from social risk adjustment methodologies and how close are we to incorporating those strategies? Well, we're 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 starting to see it happen around the country. And Judy's answer, was, which was great, you know, highlighted that there's some organizations that are already doing this. For example, um, CMS is incorporated in its uh, major ACO programs, the new so-called ACO Reach program, as well as the Medicare Shared Savings Program adjustment in payments, just as you'd adjust for say the presence of diabetes or another serious condition that has implications for health and healthcare spending, adjustment for characteristics like whether a patient is duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, that's a that's a, often a proxy for lower socioeconomic status. And CMS is also starting to use measures of geographic location, sort of community level indicators of availability of resources, income levels, and so forth that are really strong predictors of barriers to access to care, both time and distance and racial considerations, things like that, too. Many state plans uh, in in North Carolina, where I'm um, based, um, uh, are including, starting to include measures like that as well. And, And the goal is to recognize that these non-medical factors do lead to greater health needs and often, as I mentioned, uh, more significant barriers in addressing them. We are still in the early days of implementing social risk adjustment. The concept is a good one, but it's not so simple as, you know, say, putting in an indicator of whether someone is uh, is black or brown or from um, a low-income neighborhood, because just like we've seen with a lot of other analytic tools, um, if you're measuring things like the impact of of these characteristics on healthcare spending, you're not just picking up the impact of health status, which you know, worse health tends to mean more spending. You're also picking up the impact of barriers to to access to care. So we've seen a lot of biases when we use uh, some individual level measures of social risk, where you're kind of biased against um, the the impact on spending and and a good reflection of health needs. So there's a lot of work going on and and the the deeper dive that the HEAT took describes path forward to address some of these um, important issues as well. And I guess the, the the additional thing I'd like to say is, aside from the fact that we're on a learning curve here um, with some measures that we may not reliably collect potentially being important, um, like whether or not you've got um, direct social risk factor, like food insecurity or, uh, or difficulty reaching your doctor's office. These are things that I think are going to get more built into the way that we approach healthcare and hopefully get more aligned in our payment systems as well. But it's not all about um, social risk adjustment. What the report also in the work of the HEAT has also identified is really a a whole systematic set of steps that we need to um, try to take account of when we're thinking about reducing racial, ethnic, and and socioeconomic uh, barriers to healthcare. So the HEAT's taken a, a systematic approach that includes not only issues like better data collection and tools and and risk adjustment methods that um, reflect um, these these kinds of data, but additional considerations in, as as Judy mentioned, uh, engagement of of communities, additional considerations around how to do care transformation, 
other types of uh, of payment incentives, for example, uh, some of the recent CMS programs include upfront payments for ACOs in in rural, smaller ACOs in rural areas or in um, uh, underserved communities to collectively provide a, a comprehensive and effective approach to these issues. We don't have all the answers yet, but we have a lot of people from a lot of different perspectives um, really committed to finding a better way forward. And that's, um, as I said, uh, having impact on CMS policy policies, state policies, and, and, and hopefully, as a result, um, steps improve equity in our efforts to reform care and reform payments. Well, let's now talk about the recent release that the LAN had in terms of APM measurement data. The recent summit included a review of the results from the recent APM adoption survey, which included either moderate increases or at least a steady state in the various APM categories that include, you know, downside risk and, and other levels of uh, value maturation. You know, what, what for you both, what would be the main takeaway regarding the direction of the data and what we're seeing with regard to APM adoption? If you look at the, so as you said, a survey that's been done annually and, and it focuses on both um, so-called alternative payment models, which for land purposes or this category three, which means some of the payments are not related to fee-for-service and category four, which means a big shift away from fee-for-service, you know, much more downside risk and kind of in between is this category three B, which is um, some of the payments are based at the uh, the person level or again, not just on spending. And anytime you have person-based payments, um, you're going to have some downside risk. So I just want to emphasize to people, this is not about downside risk per se. It's about flexibility and payment that moves along with greater accountability for results, which really enables a lot of innovative ways to, to deliver care if done if done right. And again, that's what the, uh, the LAN, a lot of these reform efforts are trying to achieve. So overall, uh, we saw not much movement, really, you know, 2020 through 2021. Um, this was a survey just released now, it was based on what the contracts were last year. And I think that goes along with what I said earlier, back to the discussion about the pandemic, that organizations that had already moved into alternative payment models were, you know, stayed there. Um, but for others, it was like sort of all hands on deck to deal with the pandemic and a lot of temporary payment flexibilities introduced. So not as much um, overall adoption of new APMs and organizations that hadn't done it before. Essentially, everybody was in an APM during the uh, th during the pandemic. But as you said, um, within the group of so-called uh, downside risk models, we saw some significant increases with basically a, a significant number of organizations that had been in upside-only models moving more into downside. And I think that's a reflection of this progression that we've just been talking about, that with more downside risk, that means more of your payments that aren't tied to specific traditional medical services. And that means more flexibility. It also means more accountability around total costs. You know, that's the, that's, that's the risk piece. But as organizations get more familiar and comfortable with delivering value-based care and, you know, the, the pandemic certainly provided plenty of opportunities to do that, they can get, they can get more done essentially by moving further away from fee-for-service. And it was interesting that we saw some of the most significant growth in these categories of um, uh, downside 
risk, uh, not only in, in you know, Medicare Advantage, which had been kind of leading and still leads the way in terms of alternative payment model adoption, but also growth in, within the traditional Medicare program. Remember, Medicare kind of turned off new enrollment in its main ACO program, MSSP and, and others during the, uh, the pandemic, um, but still had shifts to higher downside risk within it. And then also growth in, in Medicaid too, where we've seen some upward trends overall. But if you think about the Medicaid population, on the one hand, it can be challenging as Medicaid rates are traditionally kind of um, rel relatively low and hard to deal with. But on the other hand, Medicaid beneficiaries often having these kinds of social barriers and other barriers that we talked about in, the, in this focus on equity. And that's that's gotten to be a, a big increase. And in, as we talked about in healthcare organizations emphasis, and I think many Medicaid plans and, and Medicaid directors are finding that if you don't move to alternative payment models, um, it's really hard to address some of those social drivers and uh, while keeping care affordable. So uh, some significant shifts into, into downside risk. The two points that really stand out to me is that first off, no one lost ground during the pandemic and some people gained ground, but I think that's good because we don't want to go backwards. We do, we want to keep pushing everyone towards these up and downside risk kind of arrangements to get to better population health. And then the second point is that Medicaid really increased in categories 3B and 4 over the course of the pandemic. And as Mark pointed out, I think they are a population that often has a lot of complexity, physical health issues, behavioral health issues, social issues. And I think using alternative payment models are helpful for that population because it provides some flexibility to provide services, to provide outreach, to help meet people where they are, rather than requiring them to come into a doctor or nurse's office to get care, but to be able to have more of a team-based approach and to be able to help people with what their needs are. And I think getting more Medicaid programs, I've, I've worked in Medicaid for um, almost 15 years now in different states. And I think getting to a, a population-based kind of payment is going to be critical to being able to provide excellent care to Medicaid folks. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this accountable care commitment curve. And Judy, you referenced this earlier in your comments. I mean, this is, as I understand, this conceptual guide that helps us understand the progression of value-based care and organizations throughout the country. And it, it gives us a, a foundation to which we could sustainably engage in accountable care. And, you know, Mark, I wanted to ask you, you know, just what do you think a tool like this can do in terms of uh, supporting uh, federal agencies like CMS in this movement to value and uh, in really guiding Congress and stepping in to, to do other more drastic things in terms of uh, recalibrating our system towards uh, more value orientation. And then also, Judy, what, what is the single best tool for a state agency like the Washington State Authority in terms of moving organizations along the commitment curve? Yeah, so the 
accountable care curve is as we kind of learn more about what it takes to to really adopt accountable care reflects what we're learning along the way um you know along with the the this revised curve daniel that you're mentioning the LAN has also updated its definition of accountable care which still focuses on the importance of payment reform but recognizes that accountable care needs payment reform as sort of a means to an end is now much more explicit about accountable care being care that centers on the patient and supports aligning their care team with key goals like shared decision making, um, uh, improved outcomes, greater equity, access to more comprehensive and affordable longitudinal care. And when you think about the overall goals of accountable care that way, it's not surprising that the the curve has um, both different levels of progression, I guess you could say, and and, and different dimensions. The progression goes from learning and we did a survey at the the, the land summit and about um, close to I think 30 40 percent of our participants were in that group um, investing means that you've started to take some steps um, in the direction of, of implementing accountable care um, aligning is kind of bigger steps and and work across multiple stakeholders and again this is not just about the payers even though they're they're important and then transforming care is uh, being um, sort of fully committed having this in your culture, being moved away from um, fee-for-service, uh, but but also um, having um, progress on these other dimensions. So the, the, the key dimensions include payment reform. We've talked about the different, um, you know, the land definition of, of different steps in payment reform. It includes quality, quality measurement, quality improvement is an important set of activities in their own right, where, um, you know, the same kinds of steps of investing in systems and aligning in more significant care reforms to support Im- improvements in the data, the measures, uh, and the uh, activities on the transformation. Data and infrastructure is another dimension. And then very importantly, multi-stakeholder uh, alignment. You can't get to critical mass in the U.S. health system um, for most healthcare providers unless you're not only including Medicare, but also, as we've talked about, uh, employer, you know, uh, state employers, uh, as, as well as private employers, and Medicaid as well. And then finally, as we We've been implementing these models, and we've already talked about this a, a good bit. Uh, health equity advancement is another key dimension on this um, uh, accountable care curve. So for, for each of those key dimensions, we've now got sort of better indicators as well as uh, a growing range of supports in place to, to help organizations move forward. I'll take the second part of the question about how state agencies can help move organizations along the commitment curve. And uh, first, I'll start off with uh, giving a little context about where I work. Um, The Washington State Healthcare Authority covers over 2.4 million Washingtonians. Um, The bulk of those are in Medicaid, but we also cover public employees, school employees, and retirees. And we try and sort of use a a one HCA lens, as we call it, to to think about all those populations together and how we change that. so probably our single best tool is our contracting power. 
We have contracts with um, Medicaid managed care organizations, and we have contracts with commercial insurers for our public and school employees. And we use that to move them along the curve and to ask for more for a number of years now. Um, I think we started in 2018. We have been measuring our progress on APNs and measuring our progress uh, on value-based payment. And we've been making progress every year. And that's largely through our contracts. There's a couple of important secondary tools that states have that, that can also be helpful. The first one is, is probably fairly obvious in terms of legislative tools. And as an example, in Washington, we have legislation for our Medicaid managed care organizations that have a, a 2% withhold of their payment that is for specifically for progress on value-based payment and for progress on quality measures for the Medicaid population. And so when a legislature decides to take action, they can they can make some of those health plans and then by extension, um, providers make movement differently. Another tool um, that we've also used extensively in Washington, I'll call collaboration. And as an example of that, in Washington state, we have a multi-payer primary care transformation effort that has been going on and we have brought everyone to the table. So we have a payer table, we have a purchaser table for employers that are looking for good value in their healthcare, and we have a, a clinician and health system table. And I think to move along the commitment curve, you really need all three of those different kinds of organizations and folks focusing in the same direction. It is super easy to kind of point fingers at each other among those three groups um, to say that you can't do something and, and blame someone else. And I think one of the pieces that we are trying very hard in Washington to push, and I think the LAN has been very helpful and is, is also doing this, is that it takes all kinds of those organizations working together. So collaboration. And then the last piece that's a little trickier, and the, the LAN has done a little work on this, but it, it is local, is thinking about data and transparency. And we've thought most about this, I think, in terms of health equity, but how do we measure the progress we're making and how do we report about it and how do we challenge people to do better? And so I think those are some secondary tools that can, can help people move along the commitment curve, but I think we have some nice movement already, and that momentum is really helping us push further. Thank you both. Those are great outlines and suggestions for both federal and state governments and, and entities who can really um, push people along the curve. And I, I encourage any listeners out there who are in the who have roles in these organizations to to listen to that section again and and take good notes. There's some fantastic information there. Dr. Zerzenthul, let's continue the state trans the state conversation and and jump to a part of the event that was about state transformation collaboratives. And we saw leaders from Arkansas, Colorado, California, and North Carolina giving updates on efforts underway in their respective states that to foster APM adoption and in the process create multi-pair alignment. I'd love to to ask you to to say what stood out to you about that conversation and and Mark 
also maybe as a follow-up, what stood out to you as something, the most promising thing that you heard during those reports? I am very excited about the state transformation collaborative work that the land's been doing. Um, and it is because I work at a state, but I, th I think there's a lot of potential in states leading some of this value transformation. And I've been excited to be a part of that on different levels. I think from our summit and the states who are participating, there's a lot to be hopeful about. Um, I think these states are seeing some good movement and conversation. Um, most of them are focusing on primary care as a starting point, and most of them are also working on multi-payer alignment in their states. And I think that both of those are excellent places to really make transformation and is a place where I think we've been talking about it for years and we really have an opportunity to make some change. So I think that's great. And I think starting on primary care is foundational. I'm a general internist by training. And so primary care is near and dear to my heart. And it's the place that makes the most sense to start because primary care is struggling. And I think these states are really going to make some um, progress in doing that. I think secondary steps that, that some of them are talking about is sort of how do we get to the specialist part of care? How do we get to other areas? But I think primary care is a good place to start. I think some places that will potentially make their work harder is that it seems that we're entering an economic downturn again, and that always makes things more difficult for states with less budget available, and it sometimes slows things down. So that might change. One of the really exciting things about the STCs is that CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, is at the table and is taking part in this. And I think a critical piece for moving to value is having Medicare act with Medicaid and together in the same kind of way. And I think the state transformation collaboratives allow for that and really give us an opportunity to get better population health in populations like Medicaid and Medicare that are more vulnerable and, and really need this kind of help. I just like to pick up on what Judy was saying about both the importance of state leadership and the importance of trying to get to multi-payer approaches that incorporate CMS and Medicare in particular as well. Um, a lot of the state efforts so far have largely involved um, activities from, as is the case in Washington state, state employers, uh, major private employers, Medicaid plans. And it can be sometimes hard to align with Medicare. And I think the impression in the past has been not that Medicare doesn't want to participate, but sometimes, you know, these individual uh, Medicare payment reforms come come along, like um, primary care reform models or, or something like that. And and because it's gone through a, a Medicare regulatory process and a, uh, often a time-consuming one, and, and I would just say as a former CMS administrator, you have to do that on the federal side. It's uh, required under federal law to have like uh, transparency and notice and comment and, um, and some uh, national consistency. I can make it very difficult for individual states to, to to match up with what 
uh, Medicare is doing. And I think a, a nice innovation for these new state transformation collaboratives is that they really are an effort, starting with the four pilot states that you mentioned, Daniel, to have Medicare and CMS at the table along with the state collaboratives to try to work through these issues. And that's not to say there's gonna be a magic bullet, but it turns out there's a lot of directional alignment between the Medicare care transformation and value-based care goals, particularly around strong primary care, but extending into other areas too. Judy mentioned, you know, specialty care, uh, behavioral health access and so forth. A lot of alignment between what where Medicare wants to go and where many of these state collaboratives do. Now, starting with, uh, somewhat different circumstances and players. But the idea of the STC is by having a um, more formal channel for CMS ongoing engagement, you know, not just when a particular payment reform idea comes out, but a, a more systematic longitudinal approach, um, it will be easier to identify where there are areas of key directional alignment. It'll be easier on an ongoing basis to get feedback on where more alignment would be really helpful. And it'll be easier uh, not only for CMS to hear about that, but for states and, and these regional collaborations have a clear idea about what CMS is planning to do ahead of time. One of the things that CMS released along with the occurrence of the summit was an update on their strategy around moving all uh, Medicare beneficiaries and almost all Medicaid beneficiaries into you know, these accountable care arrangements by 2030. And a key component of that is this kind of enhanced um, uh, efforts around alignment. And again, it won't happen overnight, but through this closer collaboration, uh, the hope is that we'll be able to identify similar priorities, identify areas where specific measures may differ, and identify a pathway, at least over time, to, uh, to get those more aligned and to make it easier for states that want to kind of follow down this road not to have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, Medicare standards are obviously really important for, for national standards in, in U.S. healthcare. State innovation is has been really important for getting to regional and, and, and local alignment. And the STCs are, are really about trying to bring those two strands uh, together um, with a, a process for making further and further progress through collaboration to, to get to um, alignment around, you know, not just the goal of stronger primary care, but reduced administrative burden, really reinforcing programs, um, uh, et cetera. I love that focus on the Medicaid and kind of circling back to the vulnerable populations conversation that we had a little bit earlier. And it just adds another question to my mind about what kind of shifts and, and changes do you think we'll, we'll be seeing in FQHC payment models? I know that they've been poised as you know, really providing and delivering better quality care at lower cost already, kind of leading the way in what we consider to be value but they've had one of the biggest barriers as far as um, payment models that support how they can provide that. And I'm, I'm curious to know if either of you guys have additional comments. I'm happy to take that. Federally qualified health centers are certainly a backbone for care for Medicaid folks. And in Washington state, um, that's certainly true. I think they provide primary care for about half of our enrollees. And so it, 
it is pretty big. I think one of the harder things, as you mentioned, is that there are some federal requirements in terms of how FQHCs are paid within counter rates that, that makes this a little more challenging to, to get them to an APM and change things. They get essentially a, a set fee for each visit and their reimbursement in total over the course of the year covers their costs. So that is that's really helpful for them to keep operations going and being able to see patients and is challenging to think about how might that structure fit into an APM kind of model. I think there's a number of states working on this and there's been the, the states that I know of include Oregon, Colorado, and then Washington have been trying to figure this out. Um, and how do we support FQHCs and help them deliver different kinds of care or keep improving on the care that they're doing? I think there's still some some conversation to be had about that. And I also think there's some helpful direction and things we're learning from states that have already started doing this. Washington State is one of the, the leaders in this space of kind of recognizing outside of Medicare and particularly in employer programs, including state employees, but Medicaid and these other sources of funding for, for you know, so-called safety net providers and the populations they serve as well, that Medicare reforms are helpful, but but not the only thing, um, you know, number one payer for FQHCs is Medicaid. And that's why it's been really encouraging to see the Medicaid um, payment shifts that we just were talking about. A lot to learn there and really encouraging to see efforts like in Washington State to, um, to, to bring forward, you know, stronger, uh, more accountable primary care in, in Medicaid as, as well. Um, and I think we'll keep building on that. Uh, as Judy said, you know, the, a lot of the, the payment Payments that FQHCs receive through HRSA are you know, kind of built into this traditional volume-based approach, but but we are seeing a growing number of, of FQHCs participate in Medicare ACOs, especially with some of the steps like I was describing before that uh, actually make the their terms for participation more favorable, better reflecting the, the higher costs and, and, and challenges of the populations they serve. But we've really got to reinforce that with changes in, in Medicaid payments and, and trying to move you know, a lot of Medicaid payments have, for safety net have historically been so-called dish payments or payments that go to facilities, and, and that's helpful for filling gaps. It's probably not ideal for really building care models around individuals and their needs and their own particular barriers to care. So I think it's going to be a, um, it's a huge priority for the land, something really uh, looking forward to seeing further steps from, from states like Washington to, um, to, to address these issues. So Mark and Judy, one other thing that I took away from the summit that was a major theme was this creation of multi-payer alignment. And I know that's one of the key goals uh, for the for the land. And it's so important that we have this alignment. We can't just be micro-focused on just the, the, the traditional fee-for-service Medicare program. We have to look at the totality of contracts that are in an organization's payer portfolio. And this has such potential if we can create this alignment. So I wanted to ask you both if you could elaborate on getting beyond APM adoption from a category standpoint, looking at 
ways that we can have this coalescence across the 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 payer continuum and in, in seeking ways to to find alignment for providers so that they can ultimately you know create the consistency across contracts and then have the culture to support the opportunity to treat patients the same no matter what type of insurance they have and then Judy also I'd love to get your perspective on government led multi payer programs that have been discussed and then Judy I wanted to um, hear for, from you if you could talk about government-led multi-payer programs as a pathway to increase alignment for the benefit of patients and to lower the administrative burden on patients. Um, what have you seen providers do on their end to encourage more, more of this type of alignment? And just to start on this, and, and because what I'm going to say is that what Judy's doing in Washington is a good example of, of how you go farther. Um, it's it's one thing to be directionally aligned on moving away from fee-for-service and particularly around you know, supporting uh, accountable care and, and, and stronger, um, a more comprehensive primary care. Um, it's another thing to make that as easy as possible for the the healthcare providers involved, and and for as as you were saying, uh, Daniel, for reducing the administrative burdens involved, um, because each of these organizations, the payers, the, the the providers, have you know bring their own perspective as to where some of the best opportunities are, and yet it's hard to get to real transformation if you know we're adopting ten or twenty different versions uh, or, or more around the country of a particular diabetes quality measure, heart failure measure, preventive care measure, or, or vaccine and, and um, uh, a measure uh, or the, the like. And it's not only the measures, it's also the other key components or, or elements of, of payment reform. Different attribution rules can be frustrating for providers as they're trying to concentrate efforts on um, really improving longitudinal care for patients, uh, different risk adjustment methods, um, and uh, other aspects of uh, these key components of pain reforms as well. And not only that, um, the key to improving care is really timely data on opportunities and gaps in, in quality. And if we don't have sort of standard approaches to which data, you know, admission, discharge, transfer, data that's timely and complete or notifications about key problems or needs of um, uh, of individuals, you know, whether it's medical or, or uh, um, a social need like food insecurity, um, it can be hard for providers to, to work together. So a lot of the efforts around multi-payer alignment, and this is very much part of the, the STC focus that we were just talking about, is um, how do we reduce the variation that isn't really contributing to innovation and care and that that at least over time as we get better at this is is more just getting in the way of efficiency and and the administrative um, uh, cost reduction that should be part and parcel of moving away from from fee for service so um, there's a lot of work to uh, and a lot of efforts underway including in states like our like Washington to, to to get to more alignment on not just payment, 
categories, but but making it easier for um, uh, particular providers to get to critical mass. But I say we still have a, a, a good ways to go on that, especially um, in terms of, as, as Judy was just saying, getting Medicare and um, private payers and states um, uh, all aligned in um, not just directionally, but in um, reducing burdens and really getting to critical mass. So multi-payer alignment is one of the things I am most excited about, and I'm a huge fan. And as Mark said, we're we're doing a fair bit of this work in Washington around primary care and a primary care transformation model. And I think probably the, the quickest and easiest place to have decreased administrative burden is on alignment of quality measures. And that's a piece that the state transformation collaborative states are also working on. It's a good entry point. It's it's relatively straightforward to align what quality measures as a plan you're asking. And I think it really helps practices focus on a smaller set of quality, knowing that they'll get rewarded for high quality from, from all the payers they contract with. Here in Washington, our primary care transformation efforts also include that quality alignment. We have a set of 12 measures that we've um, agreed on and aligned on that is a piece of our work. The second piece is aligning on payment. And by aligning on payment, I, I don't mean everyone's gonna pay the same amount or even everyone's going to pay in exactly the same way, but we are asking payers to align on paying primary care in a, a level four kind of way, pay a per member per month for the services that primary care provides and having alignment for that. And I, um, we've got commitment from the payers around the table to do that. And then the third piece that we are working on is data. And um, Mark mentioned some of this. I think some of the data work in Washington is still a bit aspirational. This is probably the hardest piece of multi-payer alignment to do is having data exchanges, both the healthcare data and the social data. But here in Washington, we do have some building blocks. We have an all-payer claims database that can exchange information. We have for Medicaid, a data aggregator for electronic health records. So I think there are some pieces that we can build on that will help, but that's for sure one of the harder pieces. In our primary care work, we have defined primary care. We have some expectations for clinicians. We have some expectations for payers. And then we are going to reimburse practices based on where they are in a continuum from sort of just starting out on this transformation journey, which is level one, to level three, which is advanced primary care. And a place to decrease administrative burden for us in this is that certification process to figure out what level practices are at is going to be centralized. So if a practice gets certified at a level three, all the plans participating in our effort will recognize them and, and a practice won't have to do it again and again. So I think those are some ways that administrative burden can be decreased. 
from the plan standpoint, multi-payer alignment is necessary because smaller plans can't really do this alone. We have plans at the table that we have contracts with, as I mentioned earlier, that contract power to encourage the plans to stay around the table. But we've also had independently a, a smaller plan come to the table because they recognize they want to get towards APMs and they can't do it by themselves for a practice because if a practice just has a small bit of a pair on an, an advanced payment model, it's hard to do if the rest of their business is fee-for-service. That fee-for-service will still drive it. And so working together, I think we can help move care away from fee-for-service and towards better value. Providers to, to get to this can ask for more alignment and encourage this. We've had them at the table and have had some really good conversation as we've built this model, working in sort of a, a toss things across the net kind of fashion where either clinicians or the plans will start to develop a, a piece of this model and then sort of toss it over to the other group to keep working it. And I think that that has made our model very strong. And I think the collaboration and engagement of providers is important to get this to happen. And then finally, to keep multi-payer things going, I think having the purchasers on the same page, because it is often said by plans that that purchasers don't want this. And so to get into the commercial market, you need to get those employers to also ask for the same thing. And I think the LAN has really been supporting this in a way that makes that all possible. And I think there are a number of states, including Washington, but other states have been working on this too with the state transformation collaboratives. And I think we really have a lot that we can learn from that and a lot of progress that's being made. You've listed a lot of great examples of, of leadership and in, in what you're doing in Washington, Judy, and I thank you for that. And I appreciate the explanations that you've shared. And you've also listed some challenges and difficulties of things that we need, need to be working on. And obviously, it's a really big lift. And and Dr. McClellan, earlier in your comments at the start of the conversation, you talked about you know value-based care, population health, value, whatever people call it. And I want to kind of circle back and connect these two thoughts and, and bring up something that CMS leaders commented on several times during the event, which was to improve the messaging around value-based care for patients and what it means for actual patient life for patients in their lives. And, and I'm thinking about the misunderstanding that, uh, and challenges that we have around messaging. And so just want to ask you both, if you could comment briefly on ways that we can improve the delivery or the message about accountable care, value-based care, population health equity, both from a payer and a provider organization standpoint. Yeah, I think it's important to focus, Daniel, on on what the goals are here. I mean, you know, asking patients to understand accountable care, sort of like asking me to understand my smartphone. I mean, it's a nice thing to do if you've got the the time, but what you really care about is, you know, what are the results? Um, what what does it lead to that matter for me and the, the people that I care about? And um, as people like 
Frederick Asasi, who works with Alan as well, and also works very closely with consumers, have highlighted uh, that's affordability. Um, it's access to care when you need it. It's care that doesn't seem overwhelmingly complex, but that you know is is there to meet you um, when you need it, or maybe even before uh, you, you realize you need it. It's just a different care experience, and and we have ways of of measuring that um, that that. You know, lots of experience with with measuring that, but um, I think it's really delivering on it that that, that matters the most. Um, where this also comes up, and I think where CMS is feeling some um, pressure in particular is legislative pressures. You know, they can be on on the one hand saying, "Well, you know, this is." turning Medicare away from something that's that's government run and and that relies on instead something that relies on you know the private sector as well you know Medicare already relies on the the, the private sector you know the government oversight's not going away it's just a question of what the the government oversight is doing and I think the more that we can make clear that the the goals with the accountable care are not it's not some kind of privatization plot. It's really, you know, again, it's not-for-profit organizations and for-profit organizations. You know, every physician's office almost in the country is, uh, they're not running many profits necessarily these days, but they're, they're but they're, you know, for-profit organizations. Um, it's really around what they're being paid to do that, that um, you know, that federal policies and state policies matter. Do you want to pay for services that, that aren't leading to affordability and that aren't meeting some of our fundamental needs. If you look at the trends in population outcomes in this country, not just COVID, but but um, uh, um, behavioral health and, and substance use conditions and, and even chronic diseases like uh, heart disease um, and, and risk factors uh, like diabetes, diabetes and obesity, we are not doing well, you know, despite all we're spending and all the, the technology we can buy. So paying for health, um, you know, really seems like it can can help. And on the, the flip side, you know, I've heard from some of my conservative friends, like, well, you know, isn't this some kind of government takeover as well? You know, there already are, you know, regulated prices and Medicare fee for service for everything. And this this is actually a way to get more kind of flexibility and um, for healthcare providers to do what their patients, you know, most want them to do and what they most want to do as, as, as well. So I think CMS is seeing this sum from just the, you know, the, 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 the political pressures that come with any reforms of anything where you're you're you know kind of pushing to disrupt the status quo which you know i think people on the left and right would agree we really need to do in in healthcare given the results that we're getting and the affordability problems and i guess the last thing i'd say on this important topic for those of you who are involved in this uh, out around the country uh, first of all thank you second of all tell your story um one of the things that i found most powerful throughout the the pandemic and talking with legislators um political leaders others um, is hearing from um, and they're hearing from clinicians and and um, organizations who are dealing with some very difficult challenges on the, the front line of, of pandemic response, equity inequities, um, access to care problems, and can talk about how by implementing these these reforms, they've, they've avoided, you know, they've kept their patients um, with, with asthma out of the hospital or help manage a, a mental health condition that was leading to higher medical costs and, and doing it all in a way that, that really improved a, a patient's quality of life as their as well as their affordability and we've seen a, a, I think a, a number of good news kind of you know it's hard to get good news uh, published uh, but a lot of good news stories about these kinds of successes um, around the country as well so I think all of that can help 
um, uh, get the get the stories out. But most important, um, we got to keep delivering on affordable care that that meets people where they are and that helps them get the uh, the best possible outcomes, well being, live their best lives. Very well said, Mark. I couldn't agree more. Thank you for that. Um, Judy, anything that you'd want to add? Yes. From my perspective, and and Mark said this too, our healthcare system doesn't work right now for people. Um, I can tell you stories about my own healthcare. I am certain you guys could tell me stories too about your healthcare and how it doesn't work. And I recently read a statistic that I think, you know, is, is what the land is trying to get at, that the United States accounts for about 4% of the world's population, and we spend about half of the $8 trillion that spend worldwide on health care. About $4 trillion is spent in the U.S., and we're not getting what people need and what people want. And so I, I absolutely agree. It's very powerful to get... Um, a person's experience and to have them um, relay that. I've read a couple of news articles lately that had excellent quotes that um, from people that were struggling with getting the health care that they needed and wanted, and I think really helps um, bring the point of why it's so important to both have people share their stories and to to almost do like a PR campaign to help people understand what they should be asking for in healthcare and that it's okay to ask for this in healthcare. We don't have good ways to to measure that. Um, this is an, an issue that I'm passionate about of how do we measure whether people are getting person-centered care, whether people are getting the kind of care that they want. CAPS is a, is a measurement that we usually use for, for patient experience, but it's not great and it's not very granular. And we really need to get to patient reported outcomes. We really need to get some um, to back to where we started this conversation around health equity. We we really need to measure outcomes and and changes in health, which is what we all want to happen. And I think if we can keep that eye on on the prize of affordability and and getting to excellent health outcomes, we'll we'll all be in a better place. So as we wrap up our conversation today, you know, I, I'm thinking about this looming challenge that we have. I mean, if you ask, you know, any physician executive or C-suite leader, you know, what what the top challenges are, invariably, at least in the top three, it's going to be the workforce. I mean, we have this uh, challenge in terms of keeping uh, staff engaged, empowered, ameliorating the plight of burnout, figuring out how we navigate some of these uh, staffing shortages and the cost of labor that's seemingly going up. Uh, and we have to look at ways that we can engage ex existing employees in new financial and delivery models. And, you know, given the the Institute for Advancing Health Values focus on education that includes both upskilling and reskilling of the workforce to create this uh, enablement. I'd love to get your perspective also on how the land is thinking about this. I mean, could you describe what your thoughts are on creating a more substantive way to address the staffing shortages that a lot of the provider organizations are facing? And then also in terms of investment, you know, what are some of the investment choices that need to be made by health systems and, and other risk-bearing entities in terms of reskilling and upskilling their employees as they transition to value-based payment. Well, if you look at any projections about our 
clinical workforce needs, you know, doctors, nurses versus uh, the supply of, of, of those professionals, you know, they're out of balance today. They're projected to be even more out of balance in the future. And I think it's kind of goes to Judy's point a minute ago. It's like what we're doing now is, is, is just not working. Um, I think the reason that you've seen a lot of um, investment funds from organizations that are moving into value-based care, especially those that are taking it really seriously and trying to make um, big changes is that, um, they are putting a lot of those resources into, I would say, you know, upskilling is, is is a good word, but redesigning their their workforces and and thinking about the fact that just a, a traditional uh, approach to a clinical workforce is not only um, not something that we can um, afford or that we're on track to be able to provide in terms of access to everyone, but also is probably not the most uh, efficient um, or the most effective way to do it um, for, for many of these um, uh, health problems that have origins out in the community that, that, that require meeting people where they are, that can potentially take advantage of um, tremendous new technologies that have transformed other industries that we need to use uh, carefully and thoughtfully in healthcare, especially since we, you know, we want to get to, to greater equity. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, digital tools, AI, et, et cetera. All of these can lead to a more productive workforce, but it's going to look a lot different than the ones that we've had historically. So this is hard work right now. I think this is one of the biggest challenges facing the the, the whole movement to value-based care. Um, we know we need to get there, that um, uh, bringing in community health workers, um, making sure everyone's practicing at the top of their license, making sure that we're using a technology both to better engage patients through apps and supports and the like, again, while doing it equitably um, and using AI tools and things like that that have transformed so many other industries. We need to do it right, though. Um, so um, this is an area where we need more investment. It's an area that's a big focus for 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 the land and I think for, again, everybody involved in, um, in care transformation. Um, and I really appreciate the efforts by healthcare organizations around the country at a time when they're stretched for for clinical staff especially to um to, to try to take these steps and and uh, we're going to keep working on it i agree workforce is a critical issue and we really need to figure out that pipeline we haven't talked a lot about behavioral health but especially that behavioral health pipeline we we don't have enough clinicians for what we need and um i think figuring out how everyone it it's it's a bit of a cliche that is you know said a lot of how do you have people practice at the top of their license but we need to sort of think about what we're doing now and how might we change that if we're paying for it differently and i think using that whole spectrum from peer support to you know bachelor's level folks social workers nurses physicians we, we need the whole spectrum we need the whole team um to help provide care and we need to use them in a way that that works for people and so that may not be i think one thing that the pandemic has really helped advance telehealth. And so you don't have to have a visit face-to-face. -face. People can email, people can text. Um, there's text therapy. 
all of these are tools that we're going to need to get to the healthcare that we want. And I think we need to make healthcare a place where people want to work. The pandemic, I think, has been especially hard, and a lot of people have gotten burnt out, but people were getting burned out before the pandemic. And I think that's a sign another sign, our healthcare system isn't working. We need to change how we are providing care and how we're working with people to, to get to better health. And I think using APMs, um, paying differently, following this journey that the, the LAN is helping bring people along is, is how we're going to get to a better workforce and how we're going to help keep building that pipeline of people that are interested in doing this work and and want to improve healthcare. Dr. McClellan, Dr. Zerzenthul, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you both for your leadership. Thank you for your insights. We appreciate everything that you're doing and, and are grateful to have this connection with you. And, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks to your listeners as well. And, and Judy, it's always great to work with you. Yes, this has been a delight and a great conversation. It's so important. And, uh, and thanks for your time. Take care.